I know what you're thinking. Do we really need another podcast about risk, resilience, business continuity, and crisis management? Well, I think this one will be different. Come and join me on the Resilient Journey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast, sponsored by Clear Risk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and I'm thrilled to be presenting this podcast to you. It's my goal to explore some of the biggest issues facing organizations today and chat with industry leaders about ways that we can all be more resilient. And this is episode one, our very first. Our journey is just beginning. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be addressing the biggest risk facing organizations today, cybersecurity. My guest today is Caitlin Upchurch. Caitlin is a cyber practice leader for Marsh. She's a senior insurance broker and risk advisor focused on corporate cybersecurity risk management. I recently spoke with Caitlin by phone and she had some very interesting things to say about changes in the cybersecurity industry and why you could be paying more for cyber insurance in the very near future. We'll get right into it with Caitlin after we hear from my friends at Clear Risk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Caitlin, thanks for doing this. You're my first guest on the Resilient Journey podcast, and I can't think of anyone that I'd rather have to kick off this new adventure. Uh, as a matter of fact, once I decided that I was going to do the podcast, you were literally the first person that I reached out to. So thank you. Um, before we get too far into this, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic. I'm very passionate about the topic. So really looking forward to discussing with you today. Um, so my background is I have spent about a little over 14 years in the insurance industry, focusing on all executive liability insurance lines, including cybersecurity insurance. So I started my career off as an underwriter with Chubb Insurance, underwriting directors and officers liability, uh, employment practices liability, errors and emissions liability, and cybersecurity insurance. And so the process was uh, very different back then um, as compared to today. So we'll talk about that in the evolution a little bit. But after my time as an underwriter, I moved over to the insurance broking side, working for a company called Wortham Insurance, um, who was eventually purchased in 2018 by the world's largest broker, Marsh. So I've been um, leading their regional operation here in Texas for the cyber insurance practice um, the last couple of years, but have spent my entire career focused on this cybersecurity insurance product. Well, the cyber world is just rocking right now. I mean, ransomware is off the charts and you can't go more than a few days without news of another major attack from Colonial Pipeline to Kaseya. I mean, it's front page news all the time. I was on a call last week with an insurance broker who said that there's never been a more challenging time in the cyber insurance business. I'm going to get you to tell me about how all of this is affecting the cyber insurance industry. But first, 
Let's start with just a brief overview of cyber insurance, what it is, and a general explanation of how it works. Sure. Well, there is often a lot of misconception about how the cyber insurance product works and what its functionality is, but really the product is, is pretty simple. Um, the way I like to describe it is if a business, or as we say, if or when a business has a cybersecurity event, whether it's ransomware or a malware attack or a privacy breach, the organization could be subject to two different buckets of costs. So bucket number one is the remediation effort. So the cost that the organization would incur to get themselves out of the event, investigate the event, deal with the event, um, look into their data to see what's been impacted, restore their data, uh, bring in outside vendors to investigate the event and help give them guidance to work their way through it. Um, so all of those sort of first party costs or expenses that the organization incurs when they're in the middle of a privacy or security breach event, those costs are reimbursable under the insurance policy in excess of the self-insured retention. So that's, that's bucket one. Bucket two is in the aftermath of the event, let's say that you have upset a third party and there's litigation or privacy regulatory proceedings against an, insur against an insured who has purchased a cyber insurance policy, then it's a typical claims made and reported policy where the policy would uh, pay for the defense costs of the organization to hire an attorney and defend itself in a lawsuit. And then if ultimately there's a settlement as part of that litigation, then the policy would indemnify the insured or pay on behalf of the insured for uh, their indemnity obligations to the plaintiff. So I think the most talked about and the most used piece of the policy that really is, is hot right now is the first party coverage, the first party bucket remediation expenses. So to just dive in for a moment on that a little more, um, there's a few different key areas where a policyholder would use this insurance product. First and foremost, if there's a ransomware demand, since we're talking about ransomware so much, if there's a, a ransom demand um, in Bitcoin or whatever monetary value to the threat actor, then the policy can pay for the ransom payment. So that's number one. Number two is, as I mentioned, you would go out and hire third-party uh, breach response firms such as forensics investigators or third-party uh, privacy breach counsel, crisis management, uh, PR, that sort of thing. So the cost for those providers is, is part of that first-party coverage. And while you're doing all of that, you are experiencing some distraction from your, your typical business operations. So you may incur some extra expenses as a business, or you may have uh, a business interruption loss. So that traditional business interruption loss and extra expense coverage is included in the product. And particularly as part of um, you know, data exfiltration type ransomware events, you may have problems with your data, restoring, recreating, replacing data that's been impacted in the event. So the cost to restore, replace, recreate all that data um, is part of the policy as well. So just a, just a small preview of the, the many things that are included, but it, it's pretty all-encompassing and it's working pretty well, which is why we're seeing the premiums go up so much with all the claim activity. Caitlin, one of the things that you said there that I really liked is that uh, that first bucket, that remediation bucket, is not just technical. You mentioned uh, privacy, you mentioned public relations and crisis management, and, and that's an important uh, piece to remember uh, when 
organizations are building their response protocols. All right, so with that as a backdrop, explain the changes that you're seeing now in the cyber insurance industry, because this increase in ransomware and cyber attacks is definitely having an impact. Explain it. Sure. Well, and bear in mind, this is my vantage point as um, a person that sells the product, represents multiple different insurance companies that offer the product. So I know that all of the insurance companies that have spent diligent time and effort to try to offer this product at a profitable level, um, you know, it, it's a tricky, it's a tricky task for them. And so not to say that the, the approach has been wrong. It's just that the approach has um, been difficult because cyber risk is not a static risk. It changes constantly and we don't know what's coming next. And we can't necessarily, we cannot prevent all of cyber risk. Even if we implement all the tools and security and have all the right people, there's still a probability um, to some extent that your organization could have a cybersecurity event, some type of um, you know, malware, ransomware, whatever it might be. So what has happened is that the types of risks and the types of claims that have come through under the cyber insurance product over the years have evolved. And the sort of fundamental claims that we used to have um, originally many, many years ago, starting with the privacy breach issues, those, those are still there. You know, we still have credit card breaches. We still have um, breaches of social security information. We still have people sending emails out with information that shouldn't be on an attachment to a large group of people. So you've got that kind of privacy risk going. And then you layer it with the next layer of issues, which was when we started seeing um, you know, business continuity issues and technology disruption. So things were just not working um, with technology. And as we get further and further uh, interconnected as businesses, then the reliance on technology is so critical that if one piece fails, then it could disrupt a lot of different things. Um, then we layered on top of that this era, which still continues, of the business email compromise, somebody being duped into wiring funds to uh, another another party under uh, false pretenses. So that was a new a new layer. And then, you know, all along we've had this building of malware and ransomware activity. So what happened is during the pandemic, um, even though ransomware had been going on before, many organizations jumped to work from home very quickly. And as a result, not or all organizations were set up um, with the security that they would have liked to have to um, prevent threat actors from, quite frankly, having a field day <laughs> with the lack of some cybersecurity uh, tools that allowed them to get into companies that were working on a remote basis during COVID. And so it just kind of snowballed into this epidemic of ransomware activity very, very quickly. And the first party coverage costs that I mentioned in the insurance product, so business interruption, data exfiltration, um, hiring the breach response vendors, uh, the payment of the ransom demands, all of the sudden, those types of losses were coming in at full force at a very, very rapid pace with the demands for ransom payments being higher and higher and higher and higher. And it just ha happened so quickly that all of the premiums, you know, a lot of the premiums that many of the insurers had worked so hard to build up over the years at a very profitable level, um, you know, for some, it, it may have, may have completely wiped out profitability. And for others, it may have you know, partially wiped out profitability. 
but it just forced this inflection point of, oh my goodness, you know, the price of ensuring cybersecurity risk is not what we thought it was a couple of years ago. And in fact, what is the cost for ensuring this? We don't know. We're trying to figure that out right now. And that's the stage we're at at the present moment. Is is the ransom payment the biggest part of the claim or are all of these other remediation factors a bigger part? Good question. So that is, I think, one of the myths is that the ransom payment could be the biggest piece of the claim. And we've seen some of the headlines of some major, major, you know, tens of millions of dollars for ransom payments and the demand. So yes, there are those stories. Um, but at least from what I personally have seen with my clients over the last couple of years, the ransom payment, you know, may start out a little bit high, but then there's a negotiation process and it goes down. But again, think about, think about, um, you know, I live in Texas, so there's, been some major hurricane events down here. Think about a hurricane. The all of the things that are going on after the storm hits and when the storm is happening, that's the same uh, analogy to a ransomware event. So you get this big, pay, you get this payment, but while you're trying to negotiate this payment, there's this huge distraction within the organization. Mm. You know, maybe some systems aren't working. Maybe data's locked up. Um, maybe the C-suite is is tied up and can't you know focus on a new a new business project. So the sort of distraction costs and the remediation costs end up being significantly more in most cases, at, at least for small to medium enterprises, um, than the ransom payment itself. So whether or not you pay the ransom is is maybe not the biggest drop in the bucket in terms of what your overall cost may be for a ransomware attack, noting also that there's a stat that the average um, downtime from a ransomware event has now exceeded three weeks for the average organization. Wow, that's uh, that's interesting. And when you tie that in with the business continuity concept of what your critical business functions are and how long they can afford to be offline, three weeks can be uh, a very long time. Crippling. Have, have you seen insurers being less willing to pay ransom now, though, because of the propensity of the attacks? Again, one of those sort of myths floating out there, I don't know if I should call it a myth or just sort of a, a narrative, but, you know, the bottom line is insurance companies still pay ransom payments. It's a fundamental part of the insurance contract that exists in um, every cyber insurance policy, there is one insurer that made an announcement in a specific jurisdiction that they're not paying ransom payments. But outside of that, it's a fundamental part of the policy. So just like any other insurance um, claim process, there is this expectation of cooperation with the insurance company. Therefore, if you're an organization and you buy cyber insurance and you get, I mean, I'm going to throw out an extreme example, but you get a $100 million demand on breach Friday at five o'clock and at 501, you wire a hundred million dollars. And then a week later you call your insurer and say, Hey, by the way, can you reimburse me? Yeah. You might have a little bit of an issue there, but if you're from a process standpoint, engaging with all the right people, including your insurance company, when you're going through that ransom demand process, then, you know, again, key part of the cyber insurance policy is the reimbursement for the payment of the ransom demand. You know, I always tell my clients, and I know you appreciate this too, because we've talked about it offline. You know, don't get don't get offside, don't get ahead of the insurance company. Make sure you understand what the procedure is for engaging them 
as soon as you learn about the the breach or you know the incident, um, don't go making decisions that are going to cost somebody money without talking to the insurance company first. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the application process. And we have you know a company wants to apply for cyber insurance. It's seems to me that the level of scrutiny that they have to go through is much higher today than it would have been, let's say, six months ago. Definitely. So I'll tie it back for just a moment to my early days of being an underwriter. And we had three main things that a company had to have for us to offer cyber insurance. And it was they had to have an incident response plan. They had to have a privacy policy, like about, you know, data privacy. And I guess back in those days, they didn't have a People didn't really bring their own devices. I don't, I don't remember how that was set up, but, you know, stuff like that. And then the third thing was they had to have had a penetration test to try to see if somebody could get into their network successfully. And then as, if they did those three things, then there was a very, very long questionnaire of about 150 questions that um, a company would complete. And it was hard to sell the product then, uh, relatively speaking, because there, were, there was a lot of information and we were typically dealing with you know, a lawyer or a risk manager or somebody that's not really in the cybersecurity space um, or let alone the IT space. And so that was maybe not the best way to deliver the product and sell the product, so to speak. So then over the years, as um, cyber insurance carriers would try to push the cyber insurance product, they needed to find ways to make it easier to get a policyholder to buy it. And so um, one of those ways was shortening the application process. And so over you know, a period of 10 years or so, it seemed like we got to a point where there were some companies, if you were small enough, you, you typed in your website and you had a quote. Um, and then obviously it scaled up for larger organizations. But now we have gone backwards in the sense that insurance companies know what has been causing for the most part, you know, the least common denominators of these ransomware events. So there's like a set of sort of key topics, key controls that they all want to see in order to decide if they want to deploy their insurance capital um, for cyber risk. The challenge is that how do you get that information? Do you ask it in an application? Do you ask it on the phone? Do you ask it in a combination of the phone and the application? How do you ask the question? Some of the questions are not binary. So the, the information that the carriers are seeking is actually not so, um, you know, it's not so ridiculous. It's just, it's hard to figure out the best way to get the information, if that makes sense. Our companies who are going for renewal of their policy subject to the same level as the new customer might be? Well, right now we're telling all of our clients, new or renewal, to complete the same set of information. We just started getting into this detailed level of questioning uh, as you mentioned, probably about six months ago. In fact, I think it really st started in October of 2020. So um, when we get into the second half of 2022, you know, we may not, or parts of maybe even second quarter of 2022, we may not have to ask for the exact same information all over again. But certainly now, you know, looking at August renewals on my desk, the information they completed last August may have been has anything changed about your business in 12 months? And it's funny, you know, clients will say, we'll check that answer and say no. But you think about the pandemic, you think about all the things that have happened in the last 12 months. There's no business that can say nothing has changed about their business 
Yeah, it's um, almost in the almost last 12 impossible months. to say that. Right, right. Right. So, well, help me understand it, though. So let's say an organization is filling out the application process and you're looking for certain technical specifications that they should have in place, multi-factor authentication or, or network segmentation or whatever it turns out to be. And the organization knows they just don't have it. They're not going to measure up. What do you recommend? Should they just stop? Do they fill it in anyhow? How, how do you coach organizations who are in a situation like that? Yeah, it's funny you ask that because a year ago, um, we would talk to clients who said, you know, we want to get our ducks in a row before we go into the market for cyber insurance because we want to get the best premium. And we would say, well, don't wait, don't get your ducks in a row because you might have an event while your security is not in a place where you want it to be. So try to get the insurance now and then also work on um, the improvements that you want to make. Now it is a little bit more of you you do more so have to have your ducks in a row, so to speak, um, before being eligible to receive a competitive option. Um, Competitive air quotes. I mean, it's expensive now, but it it arguably should be. So there are some fundamental things that most carriers are just not comfortable providing insurance uh, as it exists today if certain key factors are not in place, such as multi-factor authentication, no pun intended. Um, But that's how how where we're at today. The carriers are looking at ways to try to sort of work through some of these things because they understand that not every business can turn into the level of cybersecurity like a financial institution overnight. It takes time, it takes money, it takes process, it takes education. So my advice to companies who don't have all their ducks in a row, to use that phrase again, is just take a step back and gather the stakeholders in the company. Um, you know, I like to be involved in those conversations to reframe what the objectives are for the cybersecurity program uh, roadmap and goals and start to think about prioritization of time and investment. So if it costs, you know, a dollar to implement multi-factor authentication and it costs $2 to implement uh, a cyber insurance policy, you have to to weigh the pros and cons of where do you spend your money and what's your best return on the investment. And that conversation is going to continue to shift over the next, um, you know, 12 months, I believe, as companies get more educated about what they need to do to be a better a better risk, not just for insurance, but to be a, you know, in a defensive position against these threat actors. You used a phrase earlier about questions not being binary. Are the decisions from the insurers also not binary? I mean, it can be yes or no, you're accepted, you're rejected, but the position of the applicant could also affect premiums and deductibles and things like that. Is that right? That's exactly right, which is why it's so critical, um, you know, if you are working with a cyber insurance broker or an insurance broker, the process of how that broker represents you with the insurance carriers is is so key. Because if you pick up an application and it says, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and you just push it into the insurance carriers, they're taking the answers on face value. All of this has a story behind it. And so being able to have you know, the person that's helping you with your cyber insurance understand your business and be able to connect the dots between the yes and the no and and have some narratives around that and be able to sort of get a meeting of the minds of, yes, this company's not perfect now, but what company is perfect? Look what their plan is. Let's try to figure out um, 
some way to trade dollars and insurance capital to a level that protects the insured while they are working on these things, which is a long way of saying, even though we have companies that don't have all of the controls in place, there are still insurance solutions out there. But the process of procuring the insurance is so critical to have a successful result. It's almost like a lender who is lending to someone with less than perfect credit. You're going to end up paying a little bit more. You're going to get a higher interest rate. It is exactly like going through um, a loan process. And, you know, the funny thing about that is that if you've ever been through that before, they ask you a question and then they ask you the same question later, but in a slightly different way. So it's kind of the same thing uh, with the cyber insurance in many respects. All right, I'll get you out of here on this. Wrap it up by giving some advice to the risk management and resilience community when it comes to cyber insurance. What would you recommend? The first thing is get to know the individual in your organization that is not just responsible for IT. I mean, number one, know who's in charge of IT, but IT and security are technically two different functions. So some organizations have somebody in charge of security and others don't. Number one, identify who that is and how that is set up in your organization and bring them into a conversation with you because all of this boils down to a conversation about risk, risk prevention and taking on risk and what we're going to do about it. So having that individual um, as sort of a a co-lead with you as you're thinking about a cyber insurance product or just managing cyber risk is, is absolutely critical. Um, And then the second thing is become involved with your organization's uh, discussion about cybersecurity. Often we find that there are cybersecurity committees within small or large organizations that are comprised of a couple of the C-suite members, maybe a board member, obviously someone from IT or network security, but Surprisingly, the person that's dealing with insurance may not always be in that discussion. So find a way to get yourself into that discussion um, because it will open up a lot of doors for you about what the, the broader priorities are of your company. And then finally, you know, p- to put a little spin on the insurance broker role, since that's what I do, um, risk managers or people that are responsible for insurance procurement. Um, we, we see a lot of different functions that work on the insurance with us. They may not be the ones that actually are driving the process of the application and the discussions with the underwriters. That's okay. They still have a place as a conduit to the insurance procurement process that is so critical. But if, if that individual does not allow um, the broker to be able to have really regular access to the network security or IT team, it's very difficult for the insurance transaction to take place because, you know, the gatekeeper of the information are the people that are managing the IT and the people that are managing the security. So just getting comfortable with that um, is just helps so much in the long run. And, you know, you'll learn a thing or two, which some people find interesting along the way. Absolutely. Um, this has been fantastic. I feel like I could talk to you for, you know, another hour. It's just so, you have so much good information and so much insight. And I just want to thank you again. Look, you will always be the first guest on the Resilient Journey podcast. So thanks for taking the time to do this. I've been on podcasts before and I know people have wanted to connect with me after. If people wanted to connect with you, social media or whatever, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. I mean, probably the best way is I, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can always send me a note. 
and I would love to answer any questions and so appreciate the opportunity, Mark. I, I love talking about this. I think it's a fascinating um, subject and, and a major challenge for the next generation of business leaders um, that they're going to have to face. So I love to be a helpful resource to, to any and all folks that are interested in discussing. Awesome. One of the things you said that I liked, and I'm going to take you up on this, you said, you know, we get to the second half of 2022, things might look different. I'm sure that the Resilient Journey podcast will still be going by then. We'll have you back. You can give us an update and tell us what's going on. All right. I'll try to work on my crystal ball between now and then and see if my predictions (laughs) are correct. To be continued. Perfect. Thank you, Caitlin. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. So our first episode is in the books. That wasn't so hard. Thanks to our friends at Clear Risk for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. In episode two, we're going to continue our focus on cybersecurity with Patrick Burke. Patrick is the national practice leader for Hub International Ontario Limited's cyber liability practice. Among other things, he provides claims expertise and assists clients by managing and advocating on their behalf during a cyber incident. This should be interesting. So join us next time as we continue our resilient journey.